The reading this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Joel, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. If you'd like to follow in the church Bibles, it's on page 912. Joel 1, 1. The words of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field, are dried up. Surely, the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld 
from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames have burnt up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mandy. It's quite heavy stuff, isn't it? Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, that you spoke to the people of ancient Israel through Joel. Please now speak to us through the message that you gave him. Please use my words and speak through our minds that we may know more of you and take refuge in you. Amen. And I I expect that, like me, most of you will be able to think of a time in your lives when things have gone badly wrong, perhaps disastrously wrong. Something awful has happened, and as a result, your life has been turned upside down, uh, or at very least, seriously destabilized. It might have been something to do with your family, or something personal, perhaps your health. It might have been something to do with your job or or financial difficulties or something else. Whatever it was, and there may be more than one occasion for some of us, I wonder how you reacted to it. I wonder how you responded to it. Because, of course, different people respond to difficulties in different ways uh, uh, in relation to different difficulties. It may be that you were just overcome with grief, that you were just dazed, or almost in a a, a phase where you were paralysed with grief. Or perhaps, on the other hand, you went in the other direction, that you simply carried on your life. 
Maybe because of some fatalistic attitude. Maybe because you did have a calm assurance of the Lord's presence with you. Or maybe because you couldn't think of anything else to do. Or or perhaps you were confused, desperate, incessantly asking questions, incessantly wanting to talk about things, seeking to understand why, why this happened. Why did God allow it to happen to you? Or perhaps you were angry. Maybe rightly or wrongly, you blamed someone else for what had happened. Perhaps you blamed God. Maybe at an extreme, you even lost your faith in the Lord. Or perhaps again, rightly or wrongly, you blamed yourself and you experienced a deep guilt. We we all react differently in different situations and some of that may or may not resonate with you. But, but there's another question, which is, well, all right, but how should we react? Now, that's a big question, and there is no single answer. There's no single way where we should react, uh, no matter who we are and in all circumstances. That's just not the case. But there are nonetheless things that it's important that we should know. And and some of those things are are obvious. Clearly, some reactions are wrong. Losing our faith, for example. And clearly, some reactions are more appropriate than others in particular situations. But more importantly, there are some general big-picture principles that it's worth bearing in mind. And it's those big picture principles that Joel is speaking about in the passage that we've just heard read today. So who was Joel? Uh, There is where our problems begin, uh, because we don't know. Literally, all we know about Joel is what's written in that passage. In fact, in the first verse, Joel was the son of Pethuel, which isn't terribly helpful because we haven't a clue who Pethuel uh, was. Now, in the case of some prophets, uh, they're mentioned in the history books of the Old Testament, uh, but that's not true of Joel. Furthermore, the book of Joel tells us very little about him personally or about the precise times in which he lived. And the result is... We don't even know when he lived. There is a good case to be made for anything from about the middle of the 9th century BC to the middle of the 5th century BC, bar a few periods in the the middle. But here's the key. It doesn't matter. In the case of some other prophets, not knowing the background, the circumstances in which they prophesied, would mean that we couldn't really benefit from their prophecies. But that is not true of the book of Joel. Uh, The fact that we're ignorant of the details of his life or the details of precisely the circumstances in which he ministered uh, does not prevent us understanding what he wrote or learning from it. He spoke to the people about the appropriate reaction to a great disaster that had overtaken them. And he told them 
about God's warnings and his promises that transcended that disaster and indeed transcend uh, all disasters to which we may be subject. We heard about the disaster in our reading and it was pretty bad, wasn't it? The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive field fails, the vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God." Has not the food been cut off before your very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of the sheep are suffering, and so on. It was clearly a disaster of enormous proportions. But again, we don't know precisely what the cause of that disaster was. Uh, Of course, many people say, well, it's obvious it was was locusts, wasn't it? It says so in verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. And indeed, the description in this passage does match things that happen in the great locust uh, plagues that hit uh, particularly Middle Eastern countries. Uh, but it's not quite as simple as that, although the uh, translators of our church Bibles clearly think it is because they've headed it an invasion of locusts and uh, headed chapter 2, an army of locusts. The, the complication is that the Bible does use the uh, idea of plagues of locusts as uh, a simile for an invading army. Uh, I can give you the references afterwards, but you'll find them in the book of Judges twice, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Nahum. And so some people argue that what Joel's actually describing here is a foreign invasion. Again, whilst there are tens of pages in the commentaries I have which discuss this issue, it actually doesn't matter. The key point is not the precise Uh, uh, temporal cause of that disaster, but the fact that it happened. It's perfectly clear that a terrible catastrophe had overtaken the land of Israel, and the question was, how were the people going to respond to that? And it's that question that Joel is addressing in our passage today. And the first uh, point he makes by way of answer is this. He does not suggest that the people belittle the disaster. Forget it, put it behind them, carry on as if nothing had happened. No, he does exactly the reverse of that. He says that they should come face to face with the seriousness of it. He says that they should remember it, learn from it. If you've still got your Bibles open, look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Remember it. Think about it. Learn from it. 
he's saying. Now, we need to be careful because Joel was speaking to a specific situation. And we always need to be careful not to overgeneralize from passages like this. Um, Furthermore, we do need to be careful when considering our situations that we don't exaggerate problems that we're going through. Uh, Those of you of a certain age may remember Private Fraser in Dad's Army. We're all doomed. And I suspect all of us know of people who seem to regard quite slight problems as major disasters. We just need to be careful. Very often, things are not as good or as bad as they seem at the time. But, but the Bible does not ever suggest that we should adopt a stoic attitude. Staring down adversity, just carrying on regardless and ignoring it. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible is deeply realistic and proportionate, and it invites us to be the same. And so here, Joel was saying to the people, this is serious. The people of Israel had just lived through a disaster the like of which they had not experienced in their history. And Joel was saying, come face to face with that. Don't pretend it hasn't happened, but be serious uh, uh, about this. And indeed, make sure we com- you commemorate it. Now, of course, We haven't faced anything like that. But we have just lived through two years of a pandemic. Now, if we were to suggest that nothing like this had ever happened in our days or in the days of our ancestors, I can assure you the people of past centuries would rise up in vehement protest and indeed some derision. Because it's not that extreme. But it hasn't been a good two years, has it? I mean, I suspect all of us would say it's been a difficult two years. And we're not called upon to pretend otherwise. We're not called upon to pretend it hasn't been serious, and it would be wrong to do so. What we're called upon to do is to be honest and uh, proportionate and, and careful in our evaluation of these things. And having done that, we need to respond accordingly. Now, in the context of the disaster of his day, Joel said that the appropriate reaction was lamentation. Verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it's been snatched from your lips. Verse 8. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Youth. Verse 11, despair you farmers, wail you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Verse 13, put on sackcloth you priests and mourn, wail you who minister before the Lord, come spend the night in sackcloth you who minister uh, before my God. He was calling them to deep lamentation. Uh, Again, when we apply this to ourselves, we just need to be careful. The Bible never suggests that all human beings are emotionally the same. God made us all different. Nor does it suggest 
that we should all demonstrate our emotions in the same way. Uh, Does COVID deserve lamentation? I'd suggest it, it does. But that doesn't mean we'll all exhibit it in the same way. And if I react and behave differently than you do, then of course it's possible that one or both of us uh, is reacting inappropriately. I might be belittling it. You might be exaggerating it. But it's equally likely that we're simply both reacting appropriately, but in a way appropriate to our emotional makeup. Sadly, many years ago, my brother died. And my mother, who was, of course, distraught, um, just wanted to talk about him and talk about his death incessantly. And my brother's widow just didn't want to do that. She sort of clammed up in, in relation to it. And my mother came dangerously close to condemning her for it. And yet, she was, of course, distraught. And she was trying to put her own life back together. We just need to be careful that, yes, we behave appropriately and we respond appropriately, but that we don't judge others who are responding appropriately, but, but, who, are, but who are different. But, but nonetheless, Joel here said, yeah, respond appropriately. And in this case, it was a lamentation that was required. But note... Joel wasn't just asking them to weep and wail to no effect. No, he he was urging specific actions. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. It would be very easy, by the way, to think about those things in superficial terms and have a long discussion about putting on sackcloth and fasts and those kind of things. But we should be wary of that. What we need to do is is, is think about what those things signify. What is it that Joel was saying deep down? Well, first of all, putting on sackcloth was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of repentance. You, You might say, but hang on, Joel hasn't said the people have done anything wrong. I didn't read that in the passage. And much less has he said that the disaster was on account of the people's wrongdoing. Well, that's true in the sense that he doesn't say that expressly, but he does imply it. Did you notice something odd about verse 5 when I read it before? Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. Now, of course, Joel might be thinking about the local drunks down at the pub. But I don't think so. If you think about it in context, who's he actually addressing? Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. He's saying that the leaders and the people were behaving like drunkards. People who had so much to drink that they'd fallen asleep. And he was saying, wake up. Come to grips with reality. And and that reality is demonstrated by the fact that he called them to repentance. 
calls repentance because they were doing wrong. And he was saying that this disaster was on account of their wrongdoing. For the third time in this sermon, there's a word of warning that's needed. Yeah, he was saying that this disaster, whatever its earthly origins, was brought by God by way of judgment. But we shouldn't assume that every serious problem we encounter is the judgment of God. Indeed, we should be slow to come to that conclusion. Nonetheless, we are called upon to examine our lives, examine whether we are doing God's will, wake up all the time and examine whether we're doing God's will, and if not, to repent. You see, there are many reasons why something might be going wrong in our lives. I say going wrong in our lives, why we might be encountering disasters, overwhelmed with problems. This, this passage indicates that one possibility is that there is the judgment of God involved. Verse 15, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The greatest example of that in the Old Testament is the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, which you can read about in the second book of Kings. That, says the Old Testament, was God's judgment But on the other hand, an awful lot of the problems encountered by people we see in the Bibles were simply on account of living in a fallen world. Think about Jeremiah, who lived through the fall of Jerusalem. He was not being punished for his sins, yet he suffered greatly. He was God's servant, but he suffered because of a fallen world. Think about the Apostle Paul. Read 2 Corinthians, all the things he suffered, and he was God's servant. But he lived in a fallen world. And then sometimes, looking back, we can realize that God was achieving some greater purpose through something that was happening. The classic example of that in the Bible is the patriarch Joseph. We looked at his life a few months ago. And you'll recall that looking back, he said to his brothers, you intended to do me in, but actually... God did this for the salvation of his people. And more specifically, sometimes we discover things happened for the glory of God. Again, you may remember that on one occasion when Jesus healed a man who had been born blind, his disciples came to him with a conundrum and they said to him, was this man blind because he sinned? although that would have come after he became blind, or was it because his parents sinned? Those are the options. And Jesus said, no, they're not. He said, no, it wasn't either of those things. This occurred that the works of God might be displayed in him. So in Joel's case, it was the judgment of God. But there are many other possible reasons why bad things may happen, why we may even encounter disaster in our lives. Whatever they are, we need to recognise that God is at work. And and, and there are two fundamental aspects to that. The first is this, uh, to quote Paul in uh, Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Whatever else is going on, whatever the explanation for it, God 
is working for the good of those who love him. Was he working for the good of Joel in the circumstance Joel was describing here? Yes, he was. Was he working for the good of Jeremiah and Paul and Joseph and the man born blind? Yes. Yes, he was. Has he been working for our good through COVID? You may not be able to see it. I may not be able to see it, but he has been. And one day we will see it. Because in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We must never, ever forget that. And the second thing leads on from that. What was the purpose of the fast that uh, uh, Joel was saying should be declared? What was the purpose of the holy assembly, he said, should be convened? Well, he says it in verse 14. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to God. That was the purpose of it, to cry out to God. And Joel says that that's what he's doing. To you, Lord, I call. And... We too should cry out to God when faced with disaster, with awful situations. Actually, as Eddie pointed out this morning in his sermon, we should be crying out to God at all times. We, 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 we should be crying out, first of all, seeking his forgiveness, if, as in the case of Joel's people, we need it. But we should also seek God's comfort Paul said that God is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. That comes at the beginning of his second letter to the Corinthians, which incidentally is the book, the letter, in which he describes all his troubles. But he makes sure we don't misunderstand them by starting with saying, God's the God of all comfort. He's saying to us, I've been through all of this, but, but don't forget God's the God who comforts me. So we should come before God and seek that comfort. And we should also come before God and seek God's strength. Peter, the apostle, in his first letter says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We should seek that strengthening. This comes from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and every mountain fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The Lord says, be still and know that I am God. We need to cry out to God and seek our refuge in him especially in situations where we're facing serious problems, but actually at all times. And we can do that collectively and individually. By the way, during the last uh, war, major war, the Second World War, uh, the then king, George VI, declared several national days of prayer. And he called on the whole nation to turn back to God in a spirit of repentance. Now, sadly, that seems unlikely in our nation today. 
It might happen again. We should pray for it, but it seems unlikely. But it should happen in God's church, shouldn't it? And of course, whether or not we're doing it in big groups, we we should be doing it individually and in small groups. How we do that, and precisely what it comprises, will of course depend on our individual circumstances, on who we are. But as I was preparing this, there was just one thing which occurred to me, which does seem to me to be applicable to everybody, and it's this. It's a tip more than a a major point, but don't forget that the Psalms can be very useful in helping us to cry out to God and to take refuge in, in him. The Psalms, of course, address all kinds of different situations, uh, uh, but they have this in common. The Psalmists are always either crying out to God or setting their mind on God, recalling what God is like and God's acts. And very often, they do that from a position of dire need. If you want examples of that, when you get home, just open the book of Psalms. You only need to get as far as Psalm 4. Psalm 4 verse 1, Psalm 5 verse 1, Psalm 6 verse 1, and Psalm 7 verse 1 are all examples of what I've just described. Ever since I first read them, I've been struck by how the Psalms are raw. There's no pretense. There's no hiding in them. The psalmists say what their feelings are. Now, very often, that involves praising God and expressing joy and hope. But actually, an astonishing number of the Psalms express a great fear in some cases, express dire need. The psalmist implores God for help and seeks to take refuge in God. And, and as a result, those Psalms can help us. It may be that they inspire our own prayers, or maybe we actually use their very words uh, as, as our prayer and make them our own. That's simply a, a single tip. Uh, but whether or not we use the Psalms, we, what we do need to do is come before God to cry out to him and make him our refuge. Whether we are in dire need, great problems, or or, or actually in everyday situations. And we need to remember what Joel has indicated to us. Just remember, in all situations, we need to to be realistic. If we do have problems, yeah, lament the the issues that, that we're facing. Repent as necessary. And then cry out and take refuge in God. I was going to end at that point. But you know what? It's always a worry at the end of a sermon. You say things and you think, well, it's great talking about what Joel said. But are we actually going to do it? Can I ask that everybody this week just goes back and thinks, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to rely more on God? How am I going to seek God more? How am I going to seek his comfort, seek his strength, seek his restoration in the future? Amen.